It's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday edition. We'll talk with six-time Tout Wars winner and author Larry Schechter, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Pitch is a high fly ball to right deep, going back is Tarasco to the warning track. To the wall, he's under it now, and it's taken away from him by a fan, and they're going to call it a home run. I can't believe it. Pitchy Garcia is calling it a home run, and Tarasco is out to argue. A terrible call by Richie Garcia. It's all time. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 4th, and show number 5 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to six-time Tout Wars winner and author Larry Schechter talking about his new book, Winning Fantasy Baseball, we'll also have our first metric minute of the year, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield talking about contact rate for hitters. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Yaziel Puig says he's slowing down. We gotta talk some baseball. No, the Dodgers 2013 Cuban sensation isn't cutting back in the field or on the base path this season, but he has announced he's through with speeding. You'll remember he got in some trouble in the offseason, a couple of speeding incidents. Well, at the other day at the Dodgers Fan Fest event in Florida, Puig apologized for his reckless driving bust, and he said, and I quote, I was driving fast. It was my fault. I'm not ever going to drive fast or slow. I'm done with speeding. In fact, Puig has hired a driver to stay out of trouble after those off-season incidents. Good for him, and maybe nudge him up your list now that you don't have to worry that he's going to be spending time in the Hooskow. Now let's move speedily forward to our feature interview with six-time Tout Wars winner and author Larry Schechter. Larry, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Patrick. Let's establish your credentials in case anybody doesn't know them who's listening to the show today. You've had a lot of expert leagues wins. Run us down on, on the key ones. Uh, I won I won Tout Wars six times. Uh, I won Labor once, and I won the CDM uh, National Salary Cap Challenge twice. At, at a certain point, when you're winning that much, uh, people have to start thinking it's luck and start giving you some credit for having figured out how things work when you want to be a winner, and that's what the book is about. And first of all, congratulations on it. It's terrifically fun to read. It's very insightful, and I'm wondering how has the response been critically and uh, sales-wise? Uh, the response has been great both both ways. Um, the, there have been several book reviews done, which have all been very positive, and um and as far as sales, it's also done really well. It, it uh, pretty much immediately shot up to number one on Amazon's bestseller list for fantasy sports, and like in the in the top ten for baseball books. When I talk about the book with other fantasy baseball players, Larry, and believe me, everybody's talking about it. One of the questions that always pops up is, why would a guy who wins a ton of fantasy leagues be willing to tell everybody how he does it? And I'm curious about that. You're giving up a lot of your trade secrets, as it were. What made you decide to do that? Well, you know, there, I've got like three different answers for that. Um, the first answer is, the, the real short answer is that I, I kind of always wanted to write a book 
And um, I always thought it was, I was gonna, when I was younger, I thought I was going to write like the great American novel, and that never happened. But I still kind of always wanted to write a book and contribute something that would you know be lasting and be around. And I felt like this is something I'm qualified to write about. So that's that's the short answer, um, you know. And then as far as the idea of like giving up my you know strategies and stuff, um, yeah, it's kind of strange, you know. But I just thought like you know what the hell I'll do it. Larry, for what level of fantasy player did you intend the book? I intended it for all levels. You know, you know right from a brand new beginner through someone very experienced and even, you know, successful. And one of one of the things I mean I think I think that a lot of information I give um, is, you know, so some of it is stuff people have heard before, some of it is stuff that's my own that people haven't heard before. Um, there's a lot of conventional wisdom out there that I think is wrong, and I explain why. Um, so it's for all levels, and one of the things that I noticed when I was considering, you know, whether or not to write a book is there's a whole ton of information out there on the web and some books and everything, like fantasy sports um, and fantasy baseball in particular. A lot of the information is good. A lot of the information is not good. But the other thing is, there's nowhere that you can really look and find something completely comprehensive from beginning to end. It's like if you want to do an option strategy, an option draft, you have to look for information on that. You find bits and pieces here and there. If you're going to do a snake draft, same thing. Um, so I wanted to write something where you could have never played fantasy baseball before, and you could read it, and at the end of it, you would know everything you need to do from the beginning before your season until the end. And, you know, that's, so that's one of the goals I had in mind. And one of the comments somebody made in a, I think it was like an Amazon customer review, they said something like, uh, you no longer have to look in 50 different places to find information about various things. Like, um, one of the one of the topics in the book about player projections, I don't really say, and that's one section where I don't really say much of anything that's brilliant or that people haven't necessarily heard of before, but it's kind of like all comprehensive, everything is there, and you don't have to go searching, you know, 50 different articles that have been written in the past to, to piece it all together. I thought it was interesting, Larry, that quite a bit of your commentary is based on your own experience in various leagues, and you have some passages that really go into quite a lot of detail about what you were thinking at various key moments in uh, auctions in particular you seem to be going against the prevailing wisdom that there's nothing more boring than hearing some other guy talk about his fantasy team. But I've found these passages are among the most interesting and informative in the entire book. And I'm wondering, how did you assess the risk of taking the approach that I'm just going to talk about my team and and let people infer from that that there's lessons here? Well, I wasn't <laughs> yeah, I wasn't thinking it in the terms that you just put. I was thinking of, of you know good ways to show examples of how decisions are made, um, you know. It's, I, it, the you know, the one one chapter where I really go into depth is the the mono league auction chapter. I kind of run through right. my entire 2011 Tet Wars AL only draft or auction, I should say. And I think that you know, by doing that, I'm giving people examples of how you make decisions in an auction, how you have to make split second decisions and adjust. Um, so that was what I was thinking. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, if you think I'm talking, you know, if you think, like, I went into detail or something, you should have seen the first draft before I edited the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, oh, my God, it was, would 
been like 600 pages and gotten into some details and redundancy that people would have just said, okay, this is hard to read now. You know, I, the, a passage that I remember in particular from that chapter, Larry, is when you discussed the order that you wanted to nominate Felix Hernandez and or wait on Justin Verlander because of how you had them ranked in the value rankings. And it was really interesting that there was a method to the madness. So many people think, okay, I want one of these two guys. I'll take either of them. It doesn't matter who nominates them. But I think you proved pretty successfully that it does matter. You want to think that through because it's a way to generate a dollar or two of extra value possibly, and it's all those dollars or two dollars extra value that you generate that add up to being a winning fantasy player. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to get the best possible deals that I can get that I can get throughout the entire auction. And you know, the same. You know, same thing with a snake draft um, or salary cap league. It's just a little. The strategy is a little different. Some of the sections of the book, Larry, I, I, I have seen people comment have a, a bit of math in them, and you make a joke in the book about your own math skills, but really, how much math skill should a reader or anyone who aspires to succeed at fantasy baseball be bringing to the table? Well, I don't think that you need um, a lot of math skills. You know, the, the value, when, when you talk about value formulas, that to me is where it gets confusing and you can get into the weeds. Um, and um, well, sabermetrics too. You can, you can, I mean, you can get really complicated talking about sabermetrics. But basically, you don't need much. Um, one of the one of the book reviews, um, I love what a, one of the guys said about my book. He said uh, to, something like, "To use the concepts, you just need a basic understanding of multiplication and division." Um, you know, which I think is pretty true. I mean, I I dropped out of uh, math and it was 11th or 12th grade when I started calculus. I just was in like calculus for a month or two. I just thought this is ridiculous. I'm not going to need this crap. And I dropped out. I dropped out of calculus as well, but it was because I couldn't do it. Uh, mostly, uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here uh, talking with Larry Schechter, the author of Winning Fantasy Baseball. And Larry, let's talk about some of the particular ideas you raise in your book, and especially the theme that you repeat throughout is the importance of getting value, bargains or discounts that are based on your player valuations. Everybody kind of knows that, but how do you go about actually doing it? Well, one of the you know one of the big things that I do which, of course, is explained in detail in the book, is before, in, well, well, we'll talk about auctions, but I don't, I don't want to give people the impression like this book is entirely about auctions because it's also about snake drafts, salary cap. Um, but, you know, like for an auction, I will, um, I'll come up with my own values, and then I will look at other sources. I'll look at, for example, the, the Baseball HQ website. I'll look at a couple of magazines, that I know are popular, and I'll, I'll look at what other people have players rated at. So, for example, if I think, um, you know, if I think David Ortiz is worth $20, and I look at a bunch of other sources, and they all say he's worth somewhere between $16 and $18, then I'll say, okay, there's a guy I can target. I ought to be able to get a guy I think is worth $20, and it looks like other people aren't going to be willing to pay more than 18 So, before an auction, I'll go through and I'll have a target list of guys, I think I'm going to probably have, be able to get at a value that I like. And that, you know, that has helped a whole lot. Um, you know, and in like a snake draft, I, I do a similar thing comparing my values to the ADP. Um, that's when I, when, when I can get reliable ADP information, which the, 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 one, the 
um, the snake draft league that I'm playing mostly right now is the NFPC, and for the NFPC, um, you can get reliable ADP information. So I can see, you know, what guys are likely to be there at spots that I think is a good deal. Larry, something that comes up a lot for fantasy players when they're setting their valuation schemes is how are they going to set their hitting-pitching split? How much of the draft budget gets allocated to hitting versus how much to pitching? And you, you cover this in some detail in the book, but I'm wondering, should the fantasy owner make the decision on his split based on his own budget plan or intentions, or does he need to base it on the expectations of what the league is going to do and why? Well, there, there's two different things when you talk about the split. Now, right now, I think you're talking about, like, you know, you, if you go into an option, how much are you going to spend? Um, I think that, well, the, the norm, the, the pretty much the norm right now is that people spend about 69, maybe 70% of their budget on hitting and, you know, tw- uh, 29 or 30% on pitching. So you don't have to stick exactly with that, but if you stray too far from that, you're going to have a team that's you know either a little heavy or a little light on pitching or hitting. So if you go and you say, well, I'm going to spend 50% on pitching, well, you're going to have a team that's you know lopsided in pitching, and you're probably going to have to trade later because you're going to be wasting pitching. So I think you want to stay pretty close to the norm. I I try you know I go in you know wanting to stay pretty close to that norm in terms of what I spend, but options rarely work out perfectly. So if I, you know, if I go in thinking I'm going to spend 69 on hitting, uh, you know, it could be it turns out 71, 67, whatever. Because I, I'm not going to sacrifice a good deal just to make sure I exactly hit that target. You know, I'd rather be a little heavier light and be getting a good deal. The other, the other aspect of the split though, is when people make a value formula. If you do a value formula intelligently, the total money is going to add up to $260 per team. But you can split that however you want. And some you know, some people split 70-30, 65-35, whatever. And this is something I think most people probably never think about. And when you look at like um, a magazine or a website and it shows values, they I don't think they, you know, pretty much ever say, well, this is based on a 69-31 split or 65-35 or whatever. They never even mention it. Um, but it makes a huge difference because if you're, if you're, you know, if you've got, a, say, a pitcher who is worth, you think he's worth $20 by splitting the money 65-35, if you had split it 70-30 instead of $20, he's going to be worth something like 17 or 18 So it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I remember uh, reading that even a 1% difference when you look at a, a standard 12-team league, that's 3120 total dollars to be spent. 1% of that is $31 that moves from the pitching side to the hitting side or vice versa as you move that around. And $31 is a lot of money when you think about the, how the players are valued. That's, that's one whole, well, the better part of a Miguel Cabrera. Yeah, well, most the way that the value formulas work is that most of that money that gets moved is being taken out of or moved to the higher value players. So, you know, for a guy who's worth $5 or something, it's not going to matter, really. But um, for the higher value guys, you know, that's where, um, you know, it, it can, for, for pitchers especially, it can matter uh, 2 or $3 because there's you're dividing the money be- between, like, 108 pitchers Fewer guys, um, yeah. in a 12-team league versus 168 hitters. 
And I should point out in, in the uh, service of mentioning Baseball HQ's tools that on the custom draft guide, you set your own uh, value split so you know what the value split is, however you want to set it. Larry, a lot of fantasy experts will tell you time and again you have to adjust your valuations because of what's called position scarcity in the pool. Fewer second basemen who are good, therefore they're worth more. You say you just don't believe in it, and, and you're very emphatic about that. Why don't you believe in it? It seems to make some intuitive sense. You know, for me, it's not even a question of believing in it. I think, for me, I have proven to myself that it's, you know, it's mostly not there. It's, you know, except for catchers. For, you know, catchers, there's definitely scarcity, but anybody else, there's rarely any scarcity. If there is, it's usually not very much, and it's maybe a first baseman or an outfielder as well as a middle infielder. And it's really all based on what can you get at the end of an auction for a dollar or what can you get at the end of the snake draft in the in the last round and what is that player worth? And you know, what what usually happens is that at the end of an auction you can get a second baseman who's worth a dollar, you can get an outfielder who's worth a dollar, you can get a, a corner who's worth a dollar, you can get a catcher who's worth like negative two dollars. So you are lose some you are losing something by getting a catcher. So there is scarcity for a catcher, but but rarely for the other positions. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You, you the the key really to the Schechter method, if I can call it that, is that once you've had once you have your values in hand, you've calculated them. You never pay more than projected value for a player at an auction or overdraft him in a straight draft, except in some very rare circumstances. And we'll talk about that in a second. But first, Larry, how is it possible to? F- consistently get players at two three four six dollars under the projected values that you have assuming that all the other owners values are going to be more or less around where yours are well you just said he i think you just answered the question when you said more or less around the value it's like yeah um you know if i let's say i think my trout's worth forty dollars um you know that's kind of more or less what other people are going to value them out at you know i don't think there's anybody going to be at a draft thinking is worth fifty five dollars or or $25, but, you know, it's that more or less where the value is for me. It's like, you know, like I said, if, if I think David Ortiz is worth $20 and other people think he's worth, you know, somewhere between 16 and 18 well, that's pretty close, but there's my $2 difference. Um, uh, so that, you know, that's, I think, the biggest answer is that, you know, people don't just go in with all the same exact values. Um, they are a little bit different, and that's where you got to take advantage of that little bit of difference. Um, the other, and the other part of the answer is that you know, I think some people come up with reasons to overspend. They think they got to pay a premium for a stud. They think they got to pay a premium to get a first baseman who's going to hit 40 home runs. They think there's position scarcity and they're going to pay a premium for a second baseman, and so they're like overspending, or at least in my opinion, they're overspending, and that's going to create you know, more value for me. If people are spending more than I think they should on a bunch of players, they're going to have less money left and aren't going to be able to meet the prices of what I think other people are worth. Yeah, it's a zero-sum game. Sooner or later, it it has to catch up. And, of course, we also know that uh, a, a big driver of people overbidding is they just get caught up in the auction, don't want to lose a player to a guy that they don't like or that they perceive as a, as a, a dangerous opponent or whatever. There's a lot of reasons to overbid, and you're saying just don't do it. Well, yeah, you know, with, with some... You know, a few exceptions, as you said, we were going to get to, yeah. 
Okay, what are those exceptions? I think the biggest one is that you, at an auction, you have to spend money. I mean, the worst thing you can possibly do at an auction is be left, you know, holding ten or twenty dollars that you didn't spend because that's just a disaster. Um, so there is, there, there does seem to be a premium paid on a lot of the, a lot of the better players. So, um, you know, in order to make sure I don't get left holding the bag of unspent money. Um, you know, if I have to go a little bit over on a on a some a couple of higher value players, I will do that. But you know, for me, going a little bit over is like you know, hopefully only a dollar more than I think the guy's worth. Um, and again, I'm trying before the auction. I'm trying to find targets where I think I can get a thirty dollar player at a fair, you know, even you know, a dollar or two off or or the full price of thirty. So I'm I am trying to avoid overpaying for anybody. But if I you know, I don't want to get left holding money. Um, a similar situation is even, you know, with like the 15 or $20 players, if, if I find myself in like the middle stages or later stages of an auction and I'm afraid I have too much money left at that point and there's only a couple of $20 players left, you know, then I might be feeling a little desperate and think, okay, I better, you know, go a dollar over on this guy or something. Um, you know, in, in the book, and uh, I said I go through the 2011 Pat Wars auction, and I definitely give some examples of that where I was getting a little bit desperate for being afraid I was going to have too much money left. Larry, you make a point of saying in the book that you never price and force to make an opposing owner pay what you think is full value for a player, even if you believe that the owner is actually getting a pretty sweet deal. Now, I happen to agree with you on this. I think price enforcing is dumb, but explain why you think it's a bad idea. There are a couple of reasons. First of all, let's say I think Strasburg is worth $25, and the bid on him is $20. And the auctioneer is saying, going once, going twice. And I'm thinking, well, gee, you know, I don't want to let this guy get a $25 pitcher for 20 I better bid 21 in price and force. Well, the first problem is, you know, it may be that I'm the only person in the room who thinks Strasburg is actually worth $25, and maybe, you know, to my surprise, everybody else thinks he's only worth 20 so maybe nobody actually wants to bid more than that. Or maybe the two people in the room that agree with me that he's worth 25 have already bought a start, you know, a, an ace pitcher and they don't want to get a second one. So you got to be pretty damn sure that there's somebody else willing to spend $21 or, or you know, go to 22 I should say, before you bid. Um, and you may be surprised. So the first thing is, you know, that you just never know for sure maybe what other people are thinking. And the second thing is, you know, it's stupid to bid on a guy unless you're willing to take him at that price. You know, if you're bidding just because you don't mind let somebody else get a, a, an extra dollar discount, you know, if you, if you get stuck with a player that you really didn't want to have on your roster or you didn't really want to have him at that price, well, that's just dumb. And you're not competing against only one person. You're competing against, you know, let's say 11 other people in your league or have many other people in your league. So you're, you're hurting yourself a whole lot more than, you know, you're, you're maybe, you know, hurting that other guy by not letting him have the guy for that price you think is good. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Larry Schechter. And uh, Larry's got the book Winning Fantasy Baseball out, which you really should check out if you plan to be a successful fantasy baseball player. It's a, it's a huge, useful uh, 
owner's manual for running a, a fantasy baseball team successfully. Larry, uh, you also don't like the idea, you say, of setting price targets by position, which is a fairly common uh, tactic in uh, fantasy auctions where a guy will say, I'm going to spend $28 to get my first baseman, I'm going to spend 18 on a shortstop, and so on. Why do you think that's a bad idea? Well, I will set price targets, but I don't assign a position to it. So it's like I may say I want to spend $28 for a good hitter, um, and eighteen dollars for another good hitter, but I don't limit myself to the position because, um, you know, it, for, it, it doesn't matter if 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 I you know it's like sometimes when I think a lot when people are doing that again it's like these ideas like well I got to spend you know eighteen dollars on my shortstop because there's scarcity and I don't want to get stuck with a shortstop at the end, and I got to spend spend big on a first baseman because you have to get a power hitter at first base. And I think, well, no, you don't. You know, get a power hitter in the outfield. What's the difference? Um, so I don't want to limit my choices. It's like, you know, I'm trying to find 14 good deals on hitters. And if I limit myself and say, well, I have to spend big for first base, then I'm limiting my choices. I'm limiting my chances of getting a good deal. You say mixed league auction values that are published or created are mostly useless, and you do your budget planning by using mono league valuations, even though you're playing in a mixed league format. That seems very counterintuitive, Larry. Why are you doing it this way? You cannot come up with a useful formula for mixed league auction. Now, what you can do is um, you you can have a formula for mixed league auction that is mathematically correct. And if you want to say, well, you know, what are the values of all the players in a mixed league auction? You can you can very intelligently run that through, and you can come up with the correct mathematical answer of what the values are. But then, when it comes to um, you know actually buying players at an auction, now by the way, I should say that you now that that would work that works fine for a snake draft. Those values you know for a snake draft would be fine. But when it comes to bidding in an auction, a lot of them are just useless for practical purposes because. Um, you, you know, it's kind of hard to explain this briefly without showing, like, the examples in the book, but, you know, mixed, mixed option value formulas just give you values that if that's what you, if you bid, it's crazy. Like, for example, um, you know, it might tell you that a guy is worth $5, but the reality is that's a guy you're going to be able to get at the end of the auction for a dollar. So if you bid five on him, you're crazy. And um, it's like, try to translate the mixed option values into reality, it's like you need a, a decoder rank, <laughs> um, you know, which I've worked out some rules of thumb, which I show in the book, um, to try to translate the, re, you know, the, the values to the reality. So that's the first step. Now, as far as the monolink thing, um, basically, you know, what, what I did is I kind of worked out this rule of thumb that was based on the monolink values, uh, because it was just easier for me to do it that way than trying to take the mixed option values and work out a rule of thumb. But I could have done it. I could have done it that way. This is another somewhat complex question, Ari. But give our listeners an overview of what you call your draft curve that you apply when you're doing snake draft uh, format leagues. Well, the draft curve is how I compare the relative um, value of positions. The, it's like an analysis of um, the difference. In position, it really, it probably, I probably, I'm just getting into semantics. I probably should, you know, could call it uh, allowing for position scarcity. Um, I think the problem I have with that is that, as I said, except for catchers, I don't think there is 
scarcity, but basically it's just a way of of saying, like, if you're in a snake draft and you've got, an, you know, say, you've got Mike Trout valued at $40 and Robinson Cano valued at $35, well, should you, you know, take Cano before Trout because of any, you know, position scarcity for middle infielders? And that's a way you can look and say, okay, well, you know, should I, you know, where should I maybe take a, a um, you know, $20 second baseman instead of a $22 outfield or something like that. So it's basically accounting for, for scarcity. And again, though, what you find out is, except for catchers, there's pretty much never any scarcity. It's If it is, it's just very minimal or, you know, maybe, maybe for a first baseman instead of a second baseman or whatever. Uh, Larry, tell your Gabe Kapler story. It's funny and it's interesting. The first time I was ever in an auction format was uh, 2003, my first year in labor. And so I'd never been in an auction and had a lot to learn. And somewhere near the, I think it was kind of the later stages of the auction, um, Gabe Kapler was available. I had him valued at $14. He was an outfielder in Colorado at the time. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll bid 10 on him because, you know, that would be, that's lower than 14 and probably somebody will bid 11 and I'll go to 12 and I was kind of hoping I'd get him for $12. So I bid 10 and then there was complete silence until the auctioneer said that he was mine for $10. And what I learned from that was, first of all, um, as I was saying earlier about the price enforcing, um, you know, if you're going to bid $10, you, you better be pretty damn sure that there are other people in the room who think the player is worth at least that much. Um, because apparently nobody thought he was worth that much, and who knows, maybe I could have got him for $8 or $6. I mean, I'll never know, you know what I might have been able to get him for. And the other thing, thing that I learned, which was a rookie mistake, was that in the latter stages of an auction, people are getting low on money, they've got positions filled up, so that's where you often are going to find some really good deals, because people just don't have the, the money or the positions. You say in the book that that being a successful fantasy player starts with getting good projections, having a good way to convert projections to value, having a good way to acquire value at the draft, and then once you have acquired your players, to be a good in-season manager. What are some of your tips for being a good in-season manager? You know, some of the obvious things, like paying attention to what's going on, following the player news. Um, But, you know, other than the things that are completely obvious, um, in the book I I show, like, how I calculate in-season values, um, if I'm considering making a trade or considering, um, add, you know, adding a free agent or dropping a player, I kind of do a recalculation where I make a new projection of where I think the player is going to end up for the year, subtract what he's already done, and that gives me a value of what he's likely to, you know, what I think he's going to produce the rest of the way. Um, it's also, also, um, as far as like making weekly lineup decisions or daily decisions, if you're in a daily league, um, you know, I show how I calculate the expected value because it's really, it's all about getting the best value everywhere, you know, starting with the option or draft, getting as much value as possible. And then when you're making your weekly or daily lineup decisions, getting as much value as you possibly can get in your lineup. Where do you stand on the question about spending fab? Some people argue spend it early and often because you want to get the most bang for your buck in terms of games played. 
And some people say, no, you want to save it for later, especially in leagues where guys might cross over leagues and you get a uh, first crack at a Mark Teixeira crossing a few years ago, if you remember, or, or Bobby Abreu crossing a few years ago. And you can really improve your team, even though for a, a shorter run. Where do you figure on this question? Those are both valid uh, arguments, and it really just depends on if I need something. Um, I think if if I have needs early, I'm going to fill those needs early because you know, there's no point in, in waiting, hoping that at the trade deadline I'm going to get a mark to share crossing over if I've got holes that I need to fill or, you know, people who just I can, I can upgrade. So they're, they're, both, they're both valid, and, um, you know, it just entirely depends on the year and what holes I might have or who's available. Certainly getting, you know, getting like a, you know, like a $10 player on May 1st rather than waiting until the trade deadline, getting a fifteen dollars player, you're you know you're going to get more value out of that ten dollars guy because you have him a lot longer. If you're if you're replacing you know somebody who's not not worth much. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Larry Schechter, uh, the author of Winning Fantasy Baseball, and Larry. I mentioned that I was having you on the podcast and a bunch of people at the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums said, can you ask Larry this and can you ask Larry that? So I'm going to ask Larry this and that on behalf of these guys. A subscriber who goes by the handle of Yosarian, I think from Catch-22 if I'm not mistaken, isn't adjusting your pre-auction values to league tendencies straying from your mantra of sticking with your projections? I never adjust my values. My value is my value. It's it's a question of what I'm willing to to spend for a player at an auction. Um, so I might go into an auction thinking that for my, like I said before, I may, I'll make a target list. I'll, I'll look at you know my values compared to other people's values, and that gives me a target list of the players I think I'm most likely to get a good price on. And I might go into an auction thinking I can get a $4 discount on my, on my starting pitchers. And if it turns out that they're like just seem to be going for less of a you know like a higher price than I thought, I might I might have to adjust and say okay, well, I better you know I better grab somebody at a three dollar discount or a two dollar discount. So I'm not adjusting my value; I'm just adjusting what I'm willing to pay. And the opposite will happen too, where I might you know think well I wanted to get a four dollar discount, but now I think I can get a six dollar discount. I'll hold out for something even better than I thought. But it's all in response to what's going on at the auction. Uh, Whistler, another subscriber, asks, uh, how many hours do you think you spend preparing for an auction draft, counting uh, time spent building projections from scratch? Well, you know, I've, I've been asked that question a few times recently. I have no idea. It's a lot of time. You know, it's funny, too, because I, I feel like I spend so much time doing this um, that it's a lot, and it's almost embarrassing. But then, like... It was just like a couple of days ago, I saw some information where they had like um, a study of you know um, people who play fantasy baseball, and you know most of them are college educated, and, and this and that, and the other thing. And then it said something like you know the average person spends like 20 hours a week on it. It's like okay, well you know I'm not so bad. The average person spends 20 hours a week on it or something. I guess I'm not so bad. And I know I've also heard you know people say they have like 20 or 30 or 40 teams, and it's like okay, well I only have 10, so I'm not so bad. You know like a couple of months. Especially like the couple of months before the auctions and drafts, I spend a lot of time looking at players, you know, doing my own projections, and that's really the most time-consuming thing that I do. Is um, I I realize not everybody wants to do their own projections or has the time to do it, and that's fine. You don't need to do that, but I like to. Um, once the season gets going, 
most of the time I spend on it is just simply watching games and rooting for my players. And uh, in snake drafts, a guy called Jack Pack wants to know, how does a lack of reliability, especially due to injury history, affect your tiered rankings? First of all, I'm going to assume that hopefully Jack Pack did not read the book yet because in the book, um, I actually say that I don't use tiers and I really don't like the concept of tiers. As far as injury history, for me, that that's all in the projection, in the stack projection part of it. When, you, when, when I'm making projections of what I think a guy is going to produce, it's kind of like an over-under line in a football game. So if you got somebody who's injury-prone, injury like, you know, Troy Tulowitzki is always the first guy that comes to my mind, um, I'll put him down for something like 450 at-bats because that's kind of just, I don't think you can expect more than that. Um, and his all of his statistics will be based on 450 at-bats, and that's what his value will be based on. So then he will slot in wherever that value is. And for a guy like Tulewitzki, I might add a little. I might add a little bit of statistics, knowing that well, if he only gets 450 at bats, there's going to be times when he's on the DL, and I can have a replacement level player in my lineup for you know a month or whatever it is. So I might add a little bit of replacement level statistics to kind of compensate for when he's on the DL and bases value on that. And finally, Larry, a subscriber who calls himself Agellin, A G E L L I N. I hope I'm saying that right. Wonders, going into 2013, which players were you bullish on and why? I would say I'm never really bullish on anybody. I like to be conservative, and I don't, I don't like, I'm not in the business of predicting breakouts and, you know, like, wow, everybody thinks this guy's going to hit 15 home runs, but I think he's going to hit 30 this year. Um, so I'm really never bullish on anybody. It's just kind of, a, a, again, a matter of, you know, where can I get somebody for, you know, a buck or two or three less than I think he's worth. And sometimes, you know, sometimes people work out great and sometimes they're disastrous. Like, uh, last year I got Justin Masterson in both waiver and tout for like two or three dollars. And it's not that I was expecting he was going to do great things, but I thought he was worth something like six or seven dollars and I got him for two or three, so that was a good deal. And right. it turned out he, you know, he was, I, I forget, he was something like a 15 or 20 dollar pitcher for most of the interest league got hurt at the end. Larry, it's been terrific talking to you. The book is fantastic. What leagues are you playing in this season? Labor and Tout, AL, the AL League. Um, I am in some NFBC snake draft leagues. I'm actually, I'm actually going to Las Vegas for the NFBC. It's the first time I've been in Vegas for the NFBC since I, about seven years. So I'm kind of excited about that. And I'm in CDM, which is the one league I've, I've been in CDM baseball for like almost my entire fantasy baseball life, you know, about 20 years. That's the uh, salary cap game. And we've been talking about the book. Uh, tell our listeners how they can get a hold of Winning Fantasy Baseball. Uh, it's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, online and in bookstores. It's in, it's in a lot of bookstores, both in the U.S. and Canada. Um, at some point, it's going to be up on I, the ebook for iTunes, but I don't know when that is. I've heard that you know they're sometimes very slow, so it could be it could be tomorrow, it could be a month, who knows? Um, and more information about the book. If somebody wants to get more information about it, um, read some advanced reviews and stuff like that. Um, that is at winningfantasybaseballthebook.com. Oh, I just wanted to mention to uh, anybody who has already got the book, who's going to get the book on page 
one, which is the value formula chapter, the section called SGPs you can use, there is an error. The heading for 12-team mixed and 15-team mixed leagues were inadvertently swapped. So just be aware of that. And I, I know, Larry, you're also a successful fantasy football player and a fantasy basketball player. Any plans to follow up with books on how to play those games? I don't have any plans. Um, I would say it's, it's, it's possible that in the future I might write something about football, um, and I might possibly write you know, like a follow-up book about baseball. So I don't have any plans, but it's possible. Larry, thanks again very much for uh, doing this call. appreciate you joining us for the second time at Baseball HQ Radio, and I'll see you in New York City. Thanks again. Okay, thanks, Patrick. Larry Schechter is one of the most successful fantasy baseball players ever, and if you're serious about the game, his book, Winning Fantasy Baseball, should be very high on your reading list. They're waiting for the numbers to change. There it goes. Cal Ripken comes out, raises his arm with a cap, and here is... The ovation that he gets. Baseball HQ Radio. Here's Ray Murphy, General Manager of BaseballHQ.com. Don't have your full set of our 2014 books yet? Well, here is the offer you have been waiting for. There's still plenty of time to get the new season off on the right foot with our 2014 Baseball Forecaster or the just-released 2014 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Just use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off your order for either of these essential tools for the serious fantasy leader. And everyone who buys directly from us gets the electronic version of the book as well as the key charts and tables just to turbocharge your draft preparations. So remember, it's Radio 5, R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to get $5 off the baseball forecaster for 2014 or the minor league baseball analyst. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com right now and in the coming days for these features. Matt Cedarholm's Market Pulse column looks at the 2014 shortstop situation. Greg Ambrosius' latest NFBC column explores the Billy Hamilton wildcard. And Frank Noto's Keeper Leagues column has some advanced rebuilding tips. All of that and more at BaseballHQ.com right now. Time now for the Metric Minute. And here to tell us about contact rate for hitters, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. I'm Ryan Bloomfield, and I'll be doing the Metric Minute every Tuesday throughout the season this year. Just to give you a sense of where we're going to take this throughout the season, we're going to start with the basics, uh, basing metrics for hitters and pitchers to begin. As we get into draft season, we'll take a look at more uh, metrics and tools that can be used for draft prep and in-draft management. And then as we transition to in-season mode, we'll take a look at some of the in-season metrics that we use on BaseballHQ.com to evaluate and manage your teams. And finally, we'll flip-flop back and forth as the season goes on between some of the more advanced metrics that we use on the site for hitters and pitchers. So like I said, we'll start with the basics. This week for hitters is going to be contact rate, uh, simply the, the measure of how often a ball is put in play. Is your contact rate. The average contact rate for hitters last year in the American League was 78%, and in the NL, 79%. Your elite hitters, some of the highest contact rates you'll see, um, edge just over 90%. On the flip side, some of the the hackers are below 75%. So once you see contact rate dipping into the the low 70s, high 60s even, that should should be a red flag for you. 
Um, obviously, the, the batting average tends to go up or down based on the contact rate. There's a pretty strong correlation between the two. Your average contact rates last year uh, between 76 and 80% resulted in a 261 batting average for those hitters. Once you got into the low 80s, that average went up to 268. And then the upper 80s for contact rate resulted in a batting average of 272 last year. As we start to go down in the spectrum of contact rate, low low contact rates in the low 70s resulted in a 246 batting average last year. Upper 60s, 232. Lower 60s, 211. So you can see pretty quickly how batting average can drop off with these low contact rates. Chris Carter, as an example uh, for last year, for 2013, he had the lowest contact rate of anyone in baseball last year with a 58% contact rate in over 500 at-bats. That was the main reason behind you know, this year's baseball forecasters downside commentary of a 200 batting average and a spot on the bench for Carter. Uh, contact rate that low can really do damage, so, so beware there. Um, and other things you can look at are trends in contact rates. How much is a hitter improving or, or getting worse in that spectrum? One example uh, from last year is Jason Hayward. He had a 74% contact rate in 2012, so that was below average, but he upped that to 81% in 2013. That's a great sign for a hitter of Hayward's age and, and pedigree, and that also led to, to an upside commentary in the baseball forecaster. So looking at the contact rates themselves and then the trends in those over the years are a great starting point when evaluating your hitters. So that wraps up this week's Metric Minute. Uh, next week we'll take a look at the basics for pitchers, dominance, control, and command. Uh, for now, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about various BaseballHQ.com metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 4th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number five of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest on this Tuesday edition, six-time Tout Wars winner and author Larry Schechter. He has some controversial ideas and some interesting ones, but you can't argue with his results. I also want to thank our commentator from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield, our Metric Minute commentator for the first time this year and the first of many. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davin. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our News and Notes show featuring League Watch News reports Todd Zola and Master Notes. And next Tuesday, it'll be Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy, on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>